Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Sarah Bond. Sarah is a corporate vice president in Xbox at Microsoft, where she heads up the Xbox ecosystem, working with creators. She's also on the boards of Zora, Chegg, and the Entertainment Software Association, as well as on the board of the counselors at the USC School of Cinematic Arts. It's a lot of boards. Sarah, welcome to World of DAS. Thanks. It's great to be here, Oren, and great to talk to you. Absolutely. Okay. Now, where do you think like gaming is going to have like the most growth over the next decade? Oh, wow. Well, look, there's already 3 billion people in the world who play games. A lot of people don't think of it that way. How do you think of it? Is it like a month? Like they play game at least once a month, once a day? We normally do monthly is how we think about it. There's like 200 million people who play on console. You know, there's another billion or people who play on PC. But almost everybody in the world who has high-speed internet plays on mobile as well. So when you add it all together, you've got a huge portion of the world playing games. In your head, is Wordle a game? It's totally a game. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's why I say to people, they're like, I don't play games. I'm like, do you play Wordle? And they're like, yes. And I'm like, do you play games? <laughs> I mean, like, to play is, like, fundamentally human. Absolutely. Let's say how you learn, it's how you connect. You know, think back to things you did on the playground when you were like five years old, right? Like they were games like hide and seek and ring around the rosy and chase and all of those things. And that's actually very, very fundamental to humanity. So translating into a digital environment, supernatural. And when we have done a ton of analysis on it, it basically turns out that if someone has access to high-speed internet, they're playing some digital game of some type. May it be Minesweeper or Solitaire on your PC or, you know, something more immersive like a Call of Duty or a Halo. So to me, the greatest places it's going to grow is actually in regions of the world that are getting that access and India and Africa and places with huge, huge populations of people who are sort of on the cusp of getting that type of regular access to high speed connectivity and immersive play. Your team is like really invested in game developers and democratizing game development. Like, what does that look like? Are we going to just have a 100x number of game developers in the future? I think we absolutely will. The thing is, is that if you look at all forms of media, they used to all be in this very professionalized state. And we've seen as technical like tools proliferated. Yeah, like, like that, movies yeah. or something. Yeah, technical tools proliferated. And then you can have YouTube and then you can have TikTok. If you think about that with music, right, you've seen where you had to have all these things and now it's possible for Justin Bieber to become a thing, basically because of a viral moment. But that hasn't happened fully with gaming yet. You see examples of it. People might say, you know, Minecraft is an example. Roblox is another example. But there's constraints around them, right? It's in a certain world. It has a certain look and feel. We haven't totally created like, like a, a game within a game people creating, but they're not creating like their own game or something. Or a no code way to build any type of game that you want. Yep. You either have to deal with a whole bunch of constraints for what the game is like, or you have to basically just code it yourself, in which case it requires a level of professionalism and organization that isn't accessible yep. to everyone in the world. And that makes sense to me because games are actually much harder technically than any other form of media, in some ways than any other form of anything that I've seen. Like working within Minecraft, we look at the 
latency required with games, the workload, the multivariate nature of them, the fact that it includes left brain and right brain. A game isn't just good because it performs. It's good because it's entertaining. And what is entertaining? Like, what is joy? What is humor? What makes you keep coming back? Those are very subtle things that you need to learn to replicate and innovate on. And so we see that democratization. We see trends of it, but it's not nearly as far as music and video. So I'll give you an example. If you looked at the Xbox 360 generation, the creators on our platform were largely like Electronic Arts, Activision, Take-Two, big, big companies, massive teams. Now you have it, it's possible that a small team can create a game that goes completely viral. A classic example, most people don't think of it this way, Fortnite was really You know, Epic was not a huge, huge developer when they first created Fortnite. They're a huge developer now because they've had all of the success related to it, but they were actually able to leverage that. PUBG is another example. And the reason why that can happen now is because of a whole bunch of technical tools, like an engine that makes it easier to build a game, the fact that you can digitally publish and all of those things. So you see the trend coming and it's just going to keep evolving over time. And you can write that game into many, many different formats. You don't have to just put it on one particular type of thing. Exactly. Yeah. How important is like graphics? When I see some of the games my kids play, the graphics aren't like, they're like slightly better than the games that I played when I was a kid. It seems like there's a certain type of gamer where like they care deeply about the graphics and then maybe the average gamer doesn't care. Or how do you think about it? Yeah. I mean, look, there is no such thing as average gamer. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Okay, good point. You know, like it's sort of like, let's talk about what the average human likes. What you're hitting on is that there's a lot of different things that people find entertaining. And some people are really into, okay, I need to be able to have my 4K. I've got my massive OLED screen. I've got 4K. I've got 60 frames per second. And I can see it if it's not like that. And there are people 100% like that. And then there's other people who love the story of the game, or there's other people who are really into the mechanic of the game, or there's other people who are really into the connection. We want to deliver a level of graphic capability to the developer. So it's an option that they have. But you say, does it matter? Is it necessary to succeed? No. I mean, you brought up Wordle. Is there graphics in Wordle? No. What's necessary to succeed is that you create something that brings joy to people and entertains them and that they want to come back and do again. There are also like a lot of different types of games. If you think of like, there are games where it's like completely immersive experience that you're mm-hmm. going to play for hours and hours. And there's games that are kind of like, as you mentioned, like Wordle. Dipping in and out. Yeah, it's like a five minute a day thing. And it's just kind of a fun little thing you do on the side. And you may even do it while you're watching TV. It's or... effectively a fidget spinner. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How do you think of like the creator economy intersecting with the gaming world and How do you think that's going to evolve over time? Yeah, I mean, in many ways, it has intersected. A lot of tools that were born in gaming, they become tools that are relevant across the creator economy more broadly. So if you look at Unity Unreal, those are 3D engines. But now you see people using those 3D engines to do all sorts of other things. Build a roller coaster. People use Unreal for that. And, you know, create buildings or scenes or graphical interfaces, you see that. And then there's other like specialty tools. There's this one tool called SpeedTree that people use to actually sort of fill in environments in games. That's now being leveraged in all sorts of other places, including in movies and other things like that. And so 
people talk about them as separate. I actually think they are highly related in that gaming tools and capabilities and 3D graphics rendering, being able to do a creative story, all of those things are sort of flowing in the creator economy and in many ways, the bedrock of it. And how do you think of like the idea of like streaming meets gaming, whether it's like Twitch or something, I'm still flabbergasted that people watch golf. So obviously <laughs> watching someone play a video game seems a lot more exciting to me than watching someone play golf. Like it does seem like a lot of the gaming popularity is being driven also by these creators who are playing the game. Yeah, completely. I mean, people spend more hours watching games than playing games. That is a real stat. Is that true? Yeah, it is. It's true. I think it's for a variety of reasons. I mean, I think some of it is, is that you do see people just love the streamers themselves, fall in love with those personalities, just like you would a personality that plays a sport or that's on TV. Some people do it because it's actually really cool to watch a person play a game well. And then some people do it because they're trying to learn how to play the game themselves. And it does feel quite intuitive to me. I'll say growing up, that's what my family would do. Like one of us would sit down to play and everybody else would watch it. Exactly. Or you'd have like yeah. two people playing and then the rest of the kids just kind of watching the two people mm-hmm. and kind of cheering for them or yeah. you know that type of thing. And then it's like, hey, it's my turn. It's my turn. Jump in. Right. And what a platform like YouTube gaming or a Twitch has done is it's enabled to take it beyond your household and have it be anyone. It's the difference between couch co-op and online multiplayer in terms of who you can connect with. And how do you think of like the social piece of it? Some kids I know when they play Fortnite, they're playing with their friends. It's like the chatting is the social piece. When I was a kid 1,000 years ago, we would be on the couch together playing and that was kind of our social way of doing it. So how do you see that evolving and how do you see that like affecting society? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. 70% of people under 25 would rather play a video game than engage in any other form of entertainment. And I think it's exactly for the reason that you just said, which is there's the entertainment of playing, but what it really is, is it's a way to connect with people. They're not just playing single player mode. They want to play with other people, even if there's other people all over the world. Yeah, I mean, some people do play single player mode. But the connection, I think, is really key. And it's different from what you and I grew up with. And it allows people to actually achieve something with someone who can live really far away, speak a different language, you can maintain, you can grow those relationships. We have people on our platform who have lifelong friends, best friends they've made, and they've never met them. They've only played games with them. Or they'll come to one of our showcases and they'll meet them for the first time. And they're like crying, (laughs) tears of joy, like I finally saw you in person. And I think that's really powerful because it opens up things like there's a whole set of constraints. If you say, hey, the only people I can connect with when you and I were kids, like they need to live in our neighborhood. They probably went to our school and they needed to be within a five minute walk because mom was okay (laughs) with that. Otherwise, you had to organize a drive and you had three phone numbers memorized. Right. And those are the people you could call to come over to your house. And now that constraint is taken away and you can build that connection with people over long distances. A friend moves away. You don't lose contact with them. My daughter has someone she plays with who moved all the way to the other side of the country. And that's a really powerful thing. I'll tell a story like during COVID, we didn't used to let my kids play online games a lot. They were five and eight when COVID started. And so we were really careful about it. But then COVID happened and we're like, well, what are we going to do? All the rules are out the window when COVID ends. Like rules are out the window. You're not in school. 
We just had like just tons of candy in my house. Yeah. Yeah. We had a lot of Legos. I was like scared the Lego factory was going <laughs> to shut down, I swear. And so we said, okay, you can play Minecraft with friends. And they started doing that because that was the only play date they could have. But then I realized that they were actually organizing a play date that I would never organize because they were playing with kids who lived on the other side of the city where, you know, the transit time would be too much, you know, on a Tuesday afternoon. Yeah. And then they were playing with the older cousins of one of the kids joined in. And then some kids who had moved on the other side of the country joined in and they were all of different ages. And I was looking at it. I was like, okay, so by nature of playing through a game, a social interaction that otherwise would have never actually existed has come to exist. And so when you talk about how I think it'll shape the future, when you unlock something, it just can't happen any other way. You've unlocked something that people actually want, they desire, but would have just been so practically difficult to do, you would never do it. And that's why I think it becomes an ever more prevalent part of how our society interacts and connects. It's also like when I play, if I just play a game on the internet anonymously, I have no idea who I'm playing with. They might be anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. They might be of any age. They could be of any type of demographic. Sometimes you get a sense in the chat of the type of person they are, depending on like what they're talking about or how they talk, et cetera. But it's kind of cool because it's like this kind of interesting, you have 15 minutes together on a game and then you kind of move on. I think it's like a really interesting piece of humanity. I think of it as really the only way I can think of that you can share an achievement with someone. You cannot meet them. You don't need to know what they look like. You don't need to speak the same language. Yeah. You might not have the same ability, right? And you can actually get something done, not show them something you did, which is a lot of what we see in a lot of other consumer categories, but you can actually collaborate and achieve something together. And I think that's very powerful. Now, this, of course, is a data podcast. What are the core stats or data that you track that maybe people who are not as steeped in the gaming industry would not think to track? When I came to Xbox, a lot of the focus that we had rightly here is on player stats, monthly average users, engagement hours, Dow over Mal ratio, monetization per hour, all of these things that are related to how our players are engaging on and monetizing in our platform. And I believe that is so core. But What I really learned in my time here is that a platform versus if you're running a game, that's really righteous. If you're running a platform, which I define as like a two-sided ecosystem, you sort of need to look at the inverse of that too. I spend a lot of my time essentially looking at developers and saying, okay, how many developers are developing for us? How many of them are shipping? Of those games are shipping, how healthy are they monetizing? What are their total economics on our platform across like subscription? How healthy are they? And those are the stats that I think are sort of an unconventional one for a consumer business to look at. But for us, because so much of our success is actually reliant upon making other creators successful, it's really core to the overall health of what we do. When you think of like there are certain types of subscription businesses like Netflix or Spotify that have many of the same characteristics as like a Game Pass, but then there's also areas where the similarities really break down. Like if you create a movie or a TV show, you could put that anywhere. Maybe Netflix buys the exclusive rights to it, or maybe Netflix is actually producing it. Same thing with the song that could be anywhere. Maybe it's exclusively on Spotify or something, but likely is it's going to be a lot of different places, including the radio, et cetera. 
and sometimes with games, it might be just like only on this platform. It's like your developers are only putting something on a particular platform or something like that. How do you think about it? And do you study these other businesses like the Netflix and Spotify's of the world? Yeah, we studied them a ton. I mean, when we launched a subscription, we said, okay, like a game subscription doesn't exist. Do we think there's demand for it? How many people do we think would rather consume their content through subscription versus not? What does it mean to only have the content available in subscription versus giving an option? Like we've looked at it from every which way. The fundamental difference though for us, I think, versus a lot of the examples you gave goes back to what I just talked about, which is Xbox isn't a product, it's a platform. It carries a lot of products. (laughs) And so we looked at our subscription and we said, what we're basically saying is that we embrace a diversity of business models. And a diversity of business models is important for consumers because some consumers would rather just buy one game and play it all year. And some consumers love the idea of having access to hundreds of games and being able to skip around and play. And that's a big difference, by the way, in games versus some other forms of media. There are some games where people will literally play them all year. Yeah. They live in the game. Yeah. A Minecraft could be an example, or you could say, you know, NBA is an example, or FIFA. It's like 80% of their hours. Most people don't spend 80% of their time watching only one TV show. You're right. With any type of TV show, there's a limit. Maybe you can't watch every Star Trek or something, you know, because there's so many, but there's some sort of limit to the number of things that you can go do. Whereas with League of Legends or something like that, you could play that forever. It, especially in multiplayer games, it's actually not just the game you're engaging in, it's the people you're connecting with. You could argue, and we often do, that games are actually metaverses. And so you're saying, okay, some people, they just want to hang out in one type of world for a huge reward of the time. Other people are like, no, I want to try a whole bunch of things, or I want to do single player experiences, story games that are really based off of a deep narrative that act more like TV shows in terms of their, what we call replayability. You know, some games you play through them, you're not going to play it again because you know how it ends, you know what happens. And so we say, look, we support multiple models. And that's important because players like that, but also because developers like that. Because in games, the way that you choose to monetize has a huge impact on the experience of the game itself. So if a game is free to play, like successful free to play games, I mean, there's all sorts of monetization at different stages. Oftentimes they're multiplayer where the people, like if you look at Fortnite, you could argue that the people are the game as much as the game itself. Very different than you say, okay, I want to have a dramatic, deep narrative. How am I going to drive monetization in that game? So if we did like what Netflix did and we said, we're just a subscription business, it's all subscription, now subscription and advertising, but you get where I'm going. We would accidentally really limit the scope of the games that could be successful in our world. That's a big difference when we look at all these other consumer businesses, what we're doing is like, look, we're about enabling a set of business model diversity, giving people a ton of different levers of which Game Pass is one and other subscriptions that live on our platform is one so that you have the maximum availability of games to play and experiences that people could have. Okay. Yeah. That does make a lot of sense. If I think of like music, I haven't bought an actual CD or downloaded an album in probably over 10 years. I buy Spotify and it kind of works for me and I go to concerts, but like back in the day, you know, I'd buy like an album and I would just listen to that album over and over and over again. But even when I bought that album over and over and over again, I was probably spending most of my time listening to music on the radio. In music, you really want a diversity of things. 
you don't want to just listen to the same song over and over and over again. Whereas in a game, you're right. Some people want diversity, but actually quite a lot of people, they might want to play the same game over and over again for a whole month and then move on to the next. They want like maybe that type of diversity, but they really want to immerse themselves. They want to spend, you know, often at least a dozen hours in a game before they move on to the next one or something. And the other thing I'm saying is the song you're listening to, even way back when, that song is the same no matter how you bought it. Yep. There's no choose your own adventure in the song or something. In the case of a game, if a game has a lot of in-game monetization or is a free-to-play game, so the game is basically makes its money based off of how you pay them as you're playing it, versus if you pay 100% for the game up front, the experience of playing the game is very different. Yep. Distinctly different. So we have to be super careful about that because if we as a platform say, okay, we want all this thing or all this thing, some types of stories will simply cease to be created. Gaming is inherently a very, very global thing. And often there's global teams and global distribution. I know that's something like you think about a lot. And maybe 20 years ago, that wasn't something people were thinking about as much. How do you think when people are developing, distributing games, like how is that global piece part of the strategy? First, you know, the 3 billion people play games, as I was saying earlier, most of those people are not sitting in North America where we are sitting today. So we're like, look, we've got to be thinking about the needs, the price points, the game preferences of all of these people around the planet if we're actually going to build something that's relevant for them. So that's the first thing. And that's especially relevant as we think beyond our traditional console business that we start to think about how we can do things on PC and on mobile. The second thing, and it was really accelerated by the pandemic, is work location has become blown apart. People are looking for the best talent to work on a project, irrespective of where they're located. And in the gaming industry, that has coincided with a massive rise in demand for the talent that makes games. Like if you just look at the industry over the last couple of years, the industry is going to be over $200 billion. There's been a lot of consolidation which means that then a lot of people are looking to start new teams. So then like the demand for gaming talent has just continued to go up and up and up. And so people are like looking for people and saying, okay, you can live in all these different places. We've got to run our team globally distributed. But that's also super hard in a creative process. So there's just been a force that's really hit the industry around more and more teams having to figure out how to work on the cloud, how to collaborate remotely. But then lastly, I see it also as a huge opportunity. When you think about the gaming industry, especially in console, the vast majority of content in the gaming industry is effectively made in North America and East Asia. But we know that the vast majority of gamers actually aren't located in those regions. They're located around the world. And there's massive amounts of people who are going to be gamers who are going to come from regions that haven't even really started engaging deeply yet, like India and Africa. And so distributed development is a way that you can tap into the talent, the culture, the stories of those places in a way that actually enables you to continue to build relevant content. There's movie making in India, which is very successful. There's movie making in Nigeria, which is very successful. The reason why it's so successful is they've tapped into the local culture, but there's got to be some gaming also that happens there as well. There is, but a lot less relatively than those other segments right now. So you're like, okay, well, how do we give access to the tools? And we've done a bunch of stuff to open it up. Like we've taken our game development kit and we put it on GitHub. We've translated all of our documents. We've taken things out from behind NDA. We've simplified a lot of the tooling. (laughs) 
we launched something last year called the Game Dev Virtual Machine that essentially packages all the sort of essential tools that you need early on in the game development process all into a VM so teams can access it around the world and have the exact same setup. And so we're investing in all sorts of tools and products and services to sort of enable distributed and remote development because we're seeing more and more demand for it. And we also believe that there's just going to be more demand for games from places that haven't traditionally been bedrock of the gaming industry. Now, SafeGraph, where I work, we sell data about physical places. And when Pokemon Go came out, we were very excited because like, oh, wow, these are like all these customers that are going to happen in the gaming world. But there haven't been like a ton of games like that that have encourage people to interact in the real world. Where do you think that trend is going? You know, I just think Pokemon Go in a lot of ways was a beautiful piece of lightning in the bottle because it was a great IP. It was something very new and it was really easy. It was easy and fun and the way to connect. It was beautifully unique. And I think there'll be other games like that. I think there's a real demand for it, but it does take bringing together that unique combination of things to really deliver it and making it really accessible to people. I'd love to ask you a couple of questions about Microsoft. I just find the whole company so fascinating. And, you know, in some ways, like 20 years ago or so, you wouldn't say Microsoft was a good acquirer. But then recently, obviously in the gaming world, you've got ZeniMax, now you've got Activision Blizzard. I think Microsoft's biggest deal to date There are rumors that Microsoft might want to purchase Discord. And then, of course, Microsoft's made super successful acquisitions like LinkedIn and GitHub and stuff like that. Why has Microsoft transitioned to be such an effective acquirer recently? Well, I mean, look, there's so many things that have gone into that. I mean, I first want to really credit Satya with the overall Microsoft cultural transformation. There's sort of three core Microsoft cultural attributes. We talk about diversity and inclusion customers obsessed and growth mindset. If you like unpack growth mindset, I think the Microsoft of the past that you're referring to was a know-it-all culture. We know the best. Not invented here. Not invented here. We're the big guys. We don't even need to visit Silicon Valley. Like we're Microsoft. Please dock to our processes. Yep. And yeah, that doesn't make for a good acquisition situation. And it's also a company that's not going to acquire GitHub because it's a very different business model, different developer motion, everything else that had made Microsoft successful. And so I think when you look at why we had our recent track record of success, we flipped it and we've instead approached it with, okay, you do something that we don't do. We want you to be part of our company because we want you to teach us that versus we want you to dock to what we do. And that's been the real, real core of it. When I look across LinkedIn, when I look at GitHub, And that's just like a cultural transformation that need to happen? I think so. Absolutely. And then with our studios, the other thing we've really learned is there's a difference between acquiring a hard asset and a soft asset. When you acquire a game studio, yes, you're acquiring some code and IP associated with the games made. But what you're really acquiring is the people who understand the story, the lore, the community. It's a creative process. You know, I used to work in wireless. It's different than acquiring a whole bunch of um, spectrum and towers. Like that's a hard asset. You can let all the people go and you probably retained all of the enterprise value. In game studio, I would argue, is almost the other extreme. And so for us, a lot of our learning was, okay, we want these people to be part of our teams. How do we do that in a way that disrupts their core culture as least as possible, 
while giving them all of the good things that Microsoft gives them in terms of like safety, security, support. And that was another really big lesson for us in the gaming team. Even the best run large companies can often have amazingly frustrating bureaucracies. How do you keep these employees motivated? Obviously, compensate them well, but how do you keep them motivated and stop them from jumping over to smaller companies? Or, and you want to come work here? (laughs) (laughs) You're hilarious. Such a great question. Well, look, there's a couple things. One, anytime I see something as a leader that has bureaucracy in it, I take a hard look at it and I say, how much do I need to cascade this to my team? And how much can I just handle it myself? I'll be honest. So you're like an API layer and you deal with the bureaucracy and you don't let it affect your team. I will go deal with this. I will translate it down to my team in a way that's super simple and non-blocker for them so that they can understand it. So that's one thing. The second thing is there is a level at Microsoft where sometimes you're working through something like, oh, this is really hard. I've got a lot of interdependent points. I got to go talk to a ton of people. Like it's taking longer than I would if I could do it on my own. But the thing is, is that oftentimes you're doing things that you could never do on your own. Of course, because it's so big. We're talking about one of the biggest companies in the world. Yeah. And so your ability to have global impact at scale impact is just completely different than when you go to a small company. And so I often spend a lot of time reminding my team, you're working on this thing here but see how it links to this huge thing that we can do over here or see how we had an opportunity to help a team or a developer or a group of people in a really unique way that only Microsoft can. And people are very motivated by that where they see their own tangible work scale at the scale of you know millions and billions of people. Example I'll give, we had a team who we've been working with. They agreed to ship their game in Game Pass And they're a team in Ukraine and they're building a game called Stalker 2. When the war in Ukraine started, first, they asked for our help to figure out how to move their team out of Ukraine. And I was able to connect them with someone in Microsoft security who could give them some advice about how to get their team safe. Again, something I wouldn't have been able to do at a smaller company. And then they wanted to share an update on their game at our showcase this year. But for obvious reasons... Part of their team is actually involved in the war right now. Some of their team are no longer alive. They've had to relocate their team. They're behind where they thought they would have been on that game being ready. And so they really wanted to give an update on what was going on with them and drive awareness. Like a personal update. A personal update on awareness of what was happening and what they were wrestling with. And we said, okay, yeah, we're going to put that in our extended showcase. We're going to use our platform (laughs) to help generate support for what they're doing. And we made that choice. And that's something where I'm like, I know that we use the fact that we could reach millions and millions of people at Xbox to help this team that otherwise wouldn't have been able to have that scale. And that sort of makes all of the meetings and discussions I had to have to make that happen more than worth it. Okay, yeah, that's really interesting. Now, before Microsoft, you were at T-Mobile and you're known for helping the big T-Mobile turnaround. What's the big takeaway from that? Because It really was a very successful turnaround at T-Mobile. Like, what can you generalize from T-Mobile to whether it's at Microsoft or to other types of companies? So I was the chief of staff for two and a half years at T-Mobile, right as we were turning the company around when John Ledger came in, when we IPO'd and we launched our new strategy. And first of all, that was an incredible experience. I got to sort of see and be part of all of that. 
A couple of things I would generalize. First, never assume that someone is going to come save you. Just figure out what you've got to do and operate and execute and take the leap. I see a lot of teams get super risk averse. And then the fact that they're risk averse essentially paralyzes them in action, which ends up actually becoming the greater risk. And at T-Mobile, very different than I think from really, really large tech companies. After AT&T tried to acquire T-Mobile and then that didn't go through, no one was going to save us. We were like, gosh, going postpaid, no contract, that's scary. And we're like, but it's less scary than not doing anything, right? (laughs) Let's jump. We have to make this work. All hands on deck. Stop doubting yourself. The second thing is when you're competing, a lot of people sometimes do a ton of benchmarking off of competitors and try and spend a ton of time how they can be like their competitor when they don't actually spend time thinking about what they should be and what their unique sources of advantage are and what space they occupy in the market. And I think T-Mobile did that super well. They counterpositioned super well. Counterpositioned, but also counterpositioned in a way that was actually grounded in deep economics. That's not outwardly obvious, but there was a deep economic logic that underpinned it. And then I'll give an example. Like We had a program that we put out that included all international roaming in the standard plan. And you'd say, well, how can we do that? And AT&T can't. Well, AT&T had a business model that was far more dependent on charging for international roaming because they had a lot more full prime business customers sitting in their install base. Yeah. T-Mobile didn't have prime customers in its install base. (laughs) We were actually far more subprime customers who didn't travel. So we didn't have a massive reprice sitting in our P&L. I remember when you did that, like a lot of my friends who were big international travelers moved over to T-Mobile. Exactly. But it was net beneficial to us. We knew that it couldn't be copyable because we understood the economics of our competitors. So we actually had a strategic advantage that most people would say it's a disadvantage to be a lot subprime, but we didn't have to reprice our whole base. It's like a silly little thing. And then the last thing is just like really, really know your customer. Do not lose sight of your customer. It seems so obvious, but so many teams get distracted by a million other things. Bureaucracy, the internal meeting, the economics. When John Ledger came in as the CEO, and I remember this so clearly, he said, get me the phone number so that I can listen in on customer care calls. And then he would leave every night and dial into customer care calls for three hours. Not a single other member of the leadership team was doing that at the time. (laughs) And then he would come in and he'd be like, so let me tell you what our customers are talking about. And I'll tell you the instant transformation of the understanding of what we needed to do and what was really going on at the ground, the elimination of all of the layers between him, the CEO, and the customer was calling was incredible. And then he also made this decision. He said, at the time, we actually didn't have a concept of a company all hands. We didn't technically have the ability to talk to everybody at the company at once. We could talk to VPs and then it could be cascaded. He's like, nope, Figure out, Sarah, how I could talk to everybody in the company at once. Again, it's like the elimination of the layers. Like, here's me explaining to the people who touch our customers the most every day what we need and creating the sense that those people could also come back to him and share what they needed. So that customer obsession of eliminating all of the layers between you and the person who uses your product, I think can be generalized everywhere. And you mentioned when you're at T-Mobile, you started as chief of staff to the CEO. 
that role has now become like way more popular. Like what advice would you either give to CEOs to get the most out of their chiefs of staff or to chiefs of staff to get most out of their roles? Gosh, well, look, it's funny. It's a much more popular role. I'd also say it's a very specific role to the person who you're working with on both sides. Everyone's like, so what's it like? And I'm like, well, first go figure out what the leader is like, and you could go from there. One thing I say is pick someone who's not like you, who does some things that you're not as strong at, because that really helps you scale. The more you become a broad scale leader, the more you want to be able to have all of the trains moving and you want to be able to specialize in the things that I think truly make you great. And so I see a lot of people pick a chief of staff who's super like them. And I think that just sort of leads to a double down of the same thing. When what you're actually looking in your chief of staff is someone you get along with, you like, you're simpatico with them. You communicate really well with them, but... But they actually bring a different skill set to make sure everything is always coming together. Okay, interesting. All right, a few personal questions. You and I have been friends for a long time, and I've heard you often talk about your father's influence on your business career. Like, what have you learned from him? You know, my father's really amazing. You know, he was a CEO in the 90s. He was a Division One football player. He's an African-American man in his mid-70s. I mean, that's an incredible, like, statistical achievement. Not a lot of African-American CEOs even today. And then, of course, 30 years ago, even fewer. Exactly. And so a lot of times I look at what he achieved. I remind myself that so many of the things that I'm able to do today are because of huge sacrifices that he made to change things in an environment that I can't even begin to conceive of. And the number one thing he always said to me is he says, never let anybody tell you who you are and what you can do and what you cannot do. You can do anything you put your mind to. That is the biggest lesson I learned from him. Interesting, because there's a trope today that there's a certain like victimhood. And really what he's saying is you're not a victim. Like you have the right to believe in yourself. How do you think about like there's more victim mentality today than there was in the past or? Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's interesting. Like, look, Sometimes people will come to me for advice or, and they'll say, Sarah, I just, I really feel that I'm being subjected to discrimination and, you know what I mean? And people are treating me differently for this reason or for my race and gender, any number of reasons. And what I consistently say to people, I say, that is likely almost a hundred percent true. Now let's talk about what you're going to go do. Yeah. Because <laughs> the fact that that's true, it's important to acknowledge it. It's excellent data for your action plan but you're the only person who's going to get yourself out of it. And when you get yourself out of it, you get the opportunity to make sure that other people don't experience that. That's actually the ultimate goal. And that's what truly scales. And that's how I think about it. Yeah, all this stuff is happening, but each of us is a product, not of what happens to us, but what we choose to do with it. Now, you're one of the most high profile Black women in tech. How does that give you a perspective on doing things maybe differently in business that people may not appreciate? You know, a long time ago, I concluded that my greatest impact at work was what I was going to be able to do to open up opportunities for others and for them to see it's possible. So once I concluded that's why I was doing what I was doing, it was very clarifying for me. You know, sometimes you'll be in a meeting and you're trying to make a decision or you're debating between two states. When I understood my true purpose, all of those things became a lot easier. It's a lot easier, I think, for me to really just focus on, hey, let's just create the most successful, inclusive business outcome we can. Let's not focus on politics or optics or a whole bunch of other things that I think sometimes people really worry about. 
that can get in the way of driving towards true success. And that clarity came to me when I realized that I'm just turning up because I want to leave the world a better place for my children and for anybody's child who was said no or told they couldn't do something. And so if I lose my whole sense of purpose in this, then there was no point. And I think she like, in Seattle, like the percentage of African-Americans in Seattle is not very, very high. So the pool for a Microsoft to pull from is much lower. Whereas where I live in Northern Virginia, the percentage of African-Americans is really high, way higher than maybe the national average. So you see a lot more, certainly where I live, a lot more African-Americans in leadership positions, doing things of like CEOs, et cetera. How much of that can we say, okay, that's why tech doesn't have a lot, or is there something about tech that means it's not as good? It's probably both, Oren, honestly. We do a lot of work at Microsoft on geographic diversity. Like we opened an Atlanta office, we opened a development center in Africa, and we do see that helps so much. I personally have actually extended my team. I started hiring developers in Latin America. Helps a lot because we're not just working, we're living our lives And part of your living your life is being able to be near your family, your friends, your culture. And when you ask someone to pursue a career at the cost of that, a lot of people aren't going to want to do that. And so being open to broader geographies, I think, is a large part of it. But then I think there's a whole bunch of other factors around access and education that have gotten better over time. And we're starting to see the results of that. But just take real concerted work and effort over generations. Now, one thing is unique to you is You also spent a lot of time in the UK growing up. Mm -hmm. What did you take away from that? And how do you think that has affected either yourself and as you think about yourself today? Well, one of the interesting things about the UK is the entire way the UK thinks about social hierarchy, race, culture is very different than the way the US thinks of it. So frequently in the UK, people would come up to me and they would say, well, which one of your parents is white? And I would say, what do you mean, which one of my parents is white? And they're like, well, you're obviously not 100% African. So which one of your parents is white? (laughs) And I'm like, well, that's actually true. I'm not 100% African. In fact, probably, although I haven't had it tested, if you tested me, I'm probably more white and Native American than I am African. But in the US, you see, that's quite common. So I am labeled a certain way based off of that. You go to the UK, they have a completely different label for that. And interesting that someone would even ask you about that. Like, Yeah, well, no, it was just different. And then my accent played a lot into it as well. You're clearly American. Well, I was American, but then I went to a good school and I went to a private school and then I got like this upper middle class accent. Uh, got it. Are you like an Eaton Not person quite Eaton, versus like another? A little bit. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> some people use that as right, an interpretation. Totally. And so I found that actually quite freeing. Because it taught me that it was not about me. It was a societal structure that could be totally different when I moved from one place to another to another. If you only live in one structure that has one system, you start to actually internalize those messages that the society has put out there about your work. Uh, interesting. But what I learned at the age of 11, I was like, oh, <laughs> this is just all like, you know, smoke and mirrors. Right. Everyone has their own like weird sense of things. Okay. This has been great. Okay. Last question we ask all of our guests, what conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? 
I don't know if people give advice on this, but I think there's just still this perception out there that vulnerability is weakness. And I really believe that's a naive point of view that, you know, nobody achieves anything on their own. There is no such thing as individual achievement. We're all a product of like the people who created us, the people next to us, the people who succeed us, and that that is actually fundamental to leadership. True leadership is enabling others. It has nothing to do with you. Because it does seem like the conventional advice is now like be vulnerable. Like that does seem like if we had to say, what's the conventional advice? It does seem like everyone has moved to that, at least in the last five years or so. Do you disagree? No, I, I think people say that. They use the word. They use the word, but they're not really vulnerable. Right. That's what I think. Maybe it's different in different places. I think people are still very enamored with the idea that it's all them. Yeah. Interesting. All right. This has been amazing. Thank you, Sarah Bond, for joining us World Death. I follow you at Bond, Sarah Bond, <laughs> at Twitter. I encourage all of our listeners to engage with you there. Is that the best place for people to engage with you? That's the best place. I do LinkedIn as well, where I just go for plain old Sarah Bond. Okay. There we go. Okay. That's <laughs> good as well. All right. This has been amazing. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you, Oren. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.